Welcome to the Alcohol Rethink Podcast with me, your host, Patrick Fox. This podcast is for the guys out there who question the role that alcohol plays in their lives, men who want to stop drinking and don't know where to go or how to start. We're going to cover all of that and more. Let's go. Hi guys and welcome to episode 91 of the Alcohol Rethink Podcast. Today I've got a fabulous guest on. Her name is Karen Rudd. Karen is an intersectional feminist self-belief coach for smart, sensitive women who want more. More clarity, more purpose, more freedom, more happiness and more success in their businesses or lives. She helps them to ditch overwhelm, anxiety and self-doubt which often leads to procrastination, exhaustion, and burnout and numbing out with alcohol and food. So she's going to be a perfect guest for us today. And to help them create self-belief, self-confidence, and deeper connection to themselves, it changes everything and brings more joy into their lives. Karen, it's great to have you on the show, all of your knowledge, experience, and wisdom. We've been doing a bit of work together recently, which I've really loved, and Whilst I was celebrating my fourth soberversary, you were celebrating your sixth and we had a little conversation about that and I thought it'd be awesome to get you on the show and to let people learn more about you and what you do and everything else. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here and to chat to you. Yeah, it's great. So perhaps that's where we shall start, right? Like looking at six years of sobriety for you and... Firstly, like, what was it like before those six years? And then we can mm-hmm. look at what it's been like since and then everything else in between. Yeah. Okay. So before those six years, I had been regularly drinking for 31 years. I started well, drinking. Well, like we- weekly or daily or what, what did it look like? Well, it would have been weekly when I was a teenager, when I was 14. Yeah. So if I went right back to the beginning, first time I was ever given an alcoholic drink, I was eight. My wow. <laughs> me to, I was always a very um, confident, sassy kid, and I always liked being with the adults. And my mum's Irish, and she was very young when she had me, and she'd have family around, and they were all drinkers. It was always normal to have a lot of drink around. My uncle was drinking a glass of whiskey, and I was kind of taking it and wanting to have a sip. And he taunted me, oh, go on, then drink it, drink it. And that was always red rag to a ball for me. I had oh, developed wow. a very competitive, very um, sort of fierce reaction to challenge because things weren't very good and very happy at home. And my parents had had a very dysfunctional relationship breakdown that had had a lot of severe impact mm. on us. And so I had designed coping mechanisms that involved um, appearing to be as much tougher than I was. So in that moment, the toughness was, I can drink this. And it was a, a whiskey. Of course, it was harsh as hell and really burnt my throat. But yeah, I can I, imagine, man. They Jeez. thought I was going <clears> to <throat> sip it, and I was cocky, and I went down in one, put it down. And they said, oh, my God, I bet you didn't like that. And I said, actually, I want another one. And then they just said, oh, no, get out. So there was. it was just a really – when I look back on it as an adult now, I actually think that was abusive. I don't think that that should have been allowed to have happened. No way. Like I just feel the heat in my chest just you talking about it, right? And I hate whiskey. I would never choose to drink that now. I hate yeah. It. Yeah. And then when I was 10, we went on a family holiday to the south of France with my mum's boyfriend and there was no drink and it was hot and I got salt water in my mouth in the sea. 
and I drank a whole bottle of wine um, to quench my thirst and nobody stopped me. Jesus. My sister and I were smoking packets of cigarettes every day behind the caravans uh, where we were wishing that we were staying because we were in a tent and we couldn't afford the caravans. But there were other girls from our town who we'd met very randomly, we didn't know, at the same campsite. And that's what we were doing. It was it was only what so that would have been 1981. And it was there was there wasn't the advertising and, and the public health awareness and campaigns. So all you knew was what went on in your family. And both my family was one that drank a lot. And so it seemed normal. And then because of a series of, you know, very problematic issues in my home life and my mother was was mentally ill, very abusive. Um I was suffering a lot from anxiety and depression, which I didn't know when I was a teenager. And at 14, I moved schools to an independent school because I was basically uh, on a threat of being excluded from the other school and looking like I wasn't going to get any qualifications. And I met a girl there who was equally as depressed and unhappy with her life. And we decided that the way to cope with that was by taking little miniatures into school and drinking them. Bloody hell. I was in year 10 and we started having parties at the weekends. And in those days, I was talking to my husband about this the other day. He, he, he was shocked. But I don't know if you know this. A woman couldn't get served in a pub on her own until about 1984. Really? No, I didn't know that. There's a law against it. I just <clears throat> That's how recent the misogyny in law is. Another thing I found out quite recently as well is that the, the reason why a lot of toy, women's toilets like in pubs in London, older pubs, are downstairs is because they <coughs> were never built. They never had toilets for women. They were right. always toilets for men, right? Yeah, it's the same in the Houses of Parliament. So I used to yeah. work in politics. Oh, wow, really? Any female toilet at all. Yeah. Absolute nightmare. Yeah, so, um, but by 1985, only two years later, when I was 14, I could get served in a pub. Me and a couple of my friends. I mean, we wouldn't go in and ask for a whiskey, but we'd ask for half a lager or yeah. half a shandy um, or a Malibu and Coke. We would always get served. And we'd cl- I don't care how grown up we thought we looked. When I look at 14-year-old girls now, even with however much makeup they've got on, they don't look 18. So it was the irresponsibility. We were going to parties every weekend, getting very, very drunk. I was, um, I was sexually active and not coping well with the fallout in school because of that, getting a lot of bullying. And I got so drunk that I got alcohol poisoning at a party and a friend's dad was a doctor and he called my mum. And rather than talk with her about it, he was very rude and abusive and bullying and patronising and made her feel like a terrible parent. And then she did the same to me when I got home. There was no support at all. Yeah. Um, and I had the worst hangover ever. And rather than give me any comfort, she said, serves you right every time I threw up, which was for an entire day. And so without any support, feeling terrible about myself and thinking, yeah. I'm so screwed up. What's wrong with me? I carried on drinking because yeah, there wasn't any shame. support at home. Yeah. By the time I was 17, my 17th birthday, my mum kicked me out, made me homeless. I ended up living with a boy I'd met three weeks earlier really into drugs and alcohol straight away and so by 17, 17 yeah that drinking was daily and drugs as week was three times a week we had a set pattern we were certainly in the drinking at home or in the pub but partying hard Thursday to Sunday and I carried on like that <clears throat> throughout university my teens I had alcohol poisoning 
so often I went to the doctor and I said I've got an allergy to something and he said well when does it happen because I'd have this red mottled effect from my chest from the top of my breast area right up to my chin and I said well it happens when I go out drinking and he says what do you drink I said vodka and I think I'm allergic to vodka and he said well how much of it do you drink and so I, I told him he says you're not allergic to vodka you've got alcohol poisoning it's yeah. really dangerous this this is what the effect is it's blood poisoning you need to stop of course I didn't know how and had no skills we were looking at it being about 1990 by that stage somehow I dragged myself out of my little hometown tiny little place in Norfolk where all everyone seemed to do was take drugs and get drunk and got mm. myself to university but this was the acid house party era I was that generation we went wild and we did the same there m25 yeah. raves there eh? my priority was drinking you know yeah and drinking a lot all the time I don't think I ever went into a lecture before midday <clears throat> I was always hung over. I remember two, these incidences never pulled me up. I remember two really grotesque incidences. Being up all night, being on a bus on the way to college in the morning with a friend and getting off four stops early because I needed to throw up um, and throwing up all the way into college. And on another occasion, there were 60 of us on a course trip to the European Parliament because I studied politics. And we went to the SHAPE headquarters, which is the supreme headquarters of Allied powers in Europe. It's an incredibly um, prestigious military base full of colonels from all over the world. And they have this round table with um, microphones and me and my friend were giggling and being silly and they could hear us. And we thought we were so funny because we'd all been drinking so much. And one of the lecturers pulled me and my friend aside and she said to us, you might think you're funny, but at the age of 22, you're you're positively green, you're disgraceful, you're an embarrassment to yourselves and you're an embarrassment to everybody here, sort it out. Because we, we weren't just drinking a little bit, we were absolutely mortal drunk and vomiting for the entire trip. But I carried on like that until I was 27 and I had a breakdown, uh, partly because of the alcohol. And I didn't even notice I was a PR officer for a charity in London. It's very unhappy. I'd at no point had therapy or dealt with any of my trauma. Taking a lot of drugs. I had the work BMW. I'd driven back from London to Brighton. I had an open bottle of something, and I can't remember to this day what it was between my legs, and I was swigging out of the bottle while I was driving the work's brand-new BMW. And I didn't yeah. think that was a problem. I thought that was funny. And then I was working from home two days a week and I would be at the off-license waiting for it to open at 10 a.m. And I also thought that was kind of cool as well. I What was going through my head was so disordered and, and so unhealthy. And then because I had a complete breakdown and was signed off work for about six months. Um, and I was like, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to go traveling. I'm going to go around the country and see all my friends. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to take drugs. And literally a couple of weeks later, I started dating my drug dealer who had groomed me to be dependent on him and I knew was a dangerous man and didn't really like. But there was something exciting about it. And at that yeah. point, I mistook excitement for attraction. Danger, yeah. <laughs> very messed up. Yeah. So I carried on with the with the drugs and drink, but I didn't have to go to work at that point. So that was easy. I think one of the I'm just gonna shut my window. 
one of the best things that happened to me was when I first had the breakdown, I booked a trip to Australia to see one of my oldest best friends who'd moved over there because I wanted to have a little recce and see if I wanted to live there because it had always been a dream. And so at the beginning of December, I packed myself, I went off to Australia for a month and I wasn't doing any drugs while I was there. I was drinking a bit, but not a huge amount. And I had a huge amount of time to reflect, a lot of big shifts and transformations as I sat on the beach. I spent a lot of time alone. It's the first time I'd ever been anywhere completely alone. And I was there for a month and I decided I'm going to give up the drugs and booze and I'm going to um, give up my job and I'm going to rent out my house and I'm going to come and live in Australia for a year. I'm mm. 27, it's the right time to do it. And I arrived home on the day after New Year's Day, 1999, and I got pregnant in the hotel at the airport. I know it was that day because it was the only occasion that, that could have happened. And my life completely changed because I found out very, very quickly. Because actually a little bit of the story I missed is, I think I, I didn't realise I was pregnant when I went to Australia and I had <clears throat> a miscarriage the night I arrived oh. on the bathroom floor right. of my friend's apartment which was quite distressing for both of us to, to see. Yeah. So I assumed that I was nowhere I was going to get pregnant because I hadn't had another cycle in between. But I did. That was a blessing because, obviously, because I have my son, but also because I couldn't drink or take drugs. I had to sort it out. When uh, you say that, though, <clears throat> you know, some people would openly still d drink and and do things whilst they're pregnant as well right but there's that there was part of you that just knew that that was not how you wanted your pregnancy to go right yeah i i, I um i was a really heavy weed smoker and mm. i did continue <clears throat> to smoke one maybe two joints a day i had a conversation with my doctor because he knew i was struggling with depression and suicidal ideation because all the trauma was really starting to come up then mm -hmm. and he said to me i have far less worries about you having one or two cigarettes a day than i have about you not wanting to take antidepressants while you're pregnant and being in this kind of state so whatever you can do that's minimal to support yourself i'm absolutely fine with it i really don't think that we want to be beating you up for that he says it's just negligible he said it's not the sort of thing you could say publicly, but it really is. If that's going to get you through this pregnancy without, you know, really hitting a place you can't come back from. So I did smoke a couple of joints a day, no other cigarettes, and I didn't drink any alcohol at all until one night where an incident happened with my child's father. Because we split up when I was a few weeks pregnant and he became very violent and abusive and there was all sorts of other drama I actually ended up in prison after I had my child and something happened one time where he tried to violently attack me through a glass window in a friend's home that he broke through. And I, I did drink when he turned up at a party the day after that. And that was the only occasion, but I, I drank a lot. I didn't go, oh, I'll have one. I had several drinks. I had like half a bottle of vodka or something that night because I was just distraught but I never drank again during the pregnancy and then afterwards I would have been 28 I went into a regular what I would call a very normalized pattern of how people how women drink you drink with your friends you drink on a Friday and a Saturday night and I was always that person that would have one too many always had a hangover always found it hard I was a single parent I didn't have 
a partner. I didn't have an ex-partner. I didn't have parents or family. So it was me 24-7 with a premature, needy baby. And it was awful. And I I kept on like that. I kept on like that through another breakdown in my early 30s. I kept on like that through a catastrophic breakdown where I was off work for a year and then got pregnant with my second child in my mid-30s. And it was just the pattern. It was the same as we see everywhere. We hear from friends that we do with our friends that we see on TV shows. What do you do when you're stressed? You open a bottle of wine. What do you do when you socialize? You have a load of drinks and cocktails. Going out without a drink, that's so boring. My God, how am I going to get the motivation to go out? This, this idea that like you deserve it right like parenting is really difficult i'm on my own like all of these things it's like i deserve to have a drink i deserve to go out and get absolutely out of my head like <laughs> but when you look at it it's just like so backwards almost right like it yeah. completely has the opposite effect that, that, that yeah. you're looking for absolutely and what i wouldn't have been aware of which you and i both know now from the work that we do yeah is i was frightened being on my own I was very very lonely and I was totally traumatized by what I'd been through as a child and a teenager and then again with this child's father as an adult yeah yeah I had no sense of safety I had nobody to turn to in my life I had friends but I didn't have a rock like a family member or something and I needed to numb out those feelings I was just because actually when I think of it I didn't drink during my pregnancy what I did do and some of it I've completely forgot about this was I am there are probably other women out there like this in the world but I've never met them I'm the only woman I've known who went through an entire pregnancy actually was thinner at the end and after she'd given birth than before I lost weight because I walked and I walked and I walked because I couldn't tolerate the anxiety without the drink and the drugs I hadn't Mm. had to do that for 14 years so I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked all day long over my city I'd walk to see someone they wouldn't be there and I'd walk back and I just walked miles and miles and miles every day and that's how I dealt with dealt with it but I was I wasn't really processing so it was always about escapism yeah and I went into teaching and I hated my job and it was really stressful and just carried on and carried on almost like kept like recreating those environments which created those emotions that you wanted to escape from right yeah and the self-hatred and loathing afterwards if you say to yourself I'm gonna go out tonight and I'm gonna just have a cup of drinks because I want to because I enjoy them and I want to feel relaxed and I do feel a little bit tense and uncomfortable if I'm not drinking but by this you know by my 40s I had a newborn baby a toddler and a 11 year old so I did have to be clear-headed to get up to help them to look after them I wanted to be able to stick to that but I never could I was always the last one there the one they could rely on to have another drink I always felt hungover. I always felt dreadful and by the time I hit 40 I don't know if you know this um but women actually have less of the enzyme in their liver that metabolizes alcohol than men do and this actually drops quite dramatically in your 40s which is part of the way in which the entire chemical and hormonal balance in women changes as we get older and we move through to the stage of perimenopause mm-hmm. so it's not imagined you genuinely do find it you get drunk easier alcohol affects you more quickly and you do have worse hangovers and I stopped being able to sleep at all on alcohol my health was declining and I was getting really sick and I wasn't getting any diagnosis and I was getting to the point where 
I'd work a couple of days, three days a week, I think I was teaching, and I'd just be on the sofa the entire day, one toddler at preschool and another just playing beside me until school pick up for the other one every day for about two years until I completely collapsed on the floor one day in September 2016. My 16, would have been 16 or my 17 year old son found me there. I was bedridden for months, but with no diagnosis. And so in mm. January 2017, I thought, I'm going to give up drinking for a year. I'm going to give up because I need this. I need this change. I need this break. I need to know that I am capable of doing this. I need to see if this is what will help me completely, re I don't know, change my relationship with alcohol and myself. Um, I didn't pick the 1st of January. I didn't make it hard on myself. I picked the week later. I think it was the 7th of January, 2017. Just decided that's it. I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, so quite a journey up until that point, though. Yes, there was <clears throat> a lot. So it was a very classic case of, um, of a trauma response, alcohol. Yeah. But it's normalized in society so it doesn't ring any bells with people a lot of the time you know even yeah. when you're 14 and you're going to the doctors and they're telling you you've got alcohol poisoning which it should shouldn't it i mean i'm baffled now as a parent as somebody that taught teenagers for 20 years with three kids that nobody who came into my orbit like the lecturers at college in my early 20s or the doctor when i was 14 or again when i was 19 both times with alcohol issues flagged it up to a parent or school because now I know it would be a red flag it would be a safeguarding issue yeah potentially social services would have been called but nothing yeah I, I think that was just kind of like sums up the 90s and probably the noughties as well right it, it was just just so the done <laughs> thing right like not even questioned not even looked at today I saw there's an article on about Canada right they've just changed their drinking guidance and right. they're saying that it's only two alcoholic drinks a week wow. right and that's like two pints of beer for example compared to yeah. like they said two pints a day and so like it's changing <laughs> for sure right like there's so much more research into like how alcohol affects cancers and things like that um so yeah it's definitely changing now but that, that back then it was like red wine is good for you and like all this nonsense right <laughs> Yeah. What what came up for me as you were sharing that, Karen, is kind of like this is just like my own idea, perhaps, is that you know we talk about like midlife crises, mm. you know, but I wonder like the correlation between like a midlife crisis and just years of like denying or not even recognizing what your traumas are and just trying to like r literally run away from them through drinking alcohol and stuff, and like it just gets to that point say like late 20s early 30s 40s where it's just like you can't handle it anymore right like it has to be has to be looked at or addressed or investigated at least yeah well I'd actually had a ton of therapy by that stage mm. I was in therapy pretty constantly from uh within a year of having my son so 2000 right through to about 2010 with two or three different really good therapists I'd looked at my issues a lot but is what I'm coming to discover as somebody who's a trauma-informed coach myself now, is that 
they weren't actually dealing with the trauma. It was a lot of talking, talking about reliving it. it. Yeah. Yeah. What came up for me when you mentioned the midlife thing, which is really interesting, is like, yeah, it's almost like you can have a midlife crisis and you can have a midlife awakening as well. Like, yeah. what am I doing? What the actual fuck? This is just beyond a joke. For me, it was as really, I needed to give up. I needed to give up for my health. But I really wanted the challenge. I hadn't ever done anything that big and that dramatically transformational for myself it felt before when I look back I can see that I did but I just knew that I would always regret it if I didn't try and I only had past evidence that I couldn't stick at anything that I didn't change habits so I did feel that everything was stacked against me and that it was a big challenge and I I didn't have the mindset and emotional processing tools that you and I have both learned and teach um I didn't know anything about how important it is to be nice to yourself, self-compassion, patience, how to plan. I just had a big, big determination and a big why for my health and my kids. And I yeah. knew it would be challenging. Um, and I was really anxious about it. <laughs> Initially, I just bulldozed my way through it, making it a lot harder than it could have been. I mean, you'd, yeah. be, you'd be horrified if you'd had a little window in my brain to the way I talked to myself <laughs> for the first few months. I think we all would. Like, I think if we actually saw how we talk to ourselves sometimes, we we would be horrified. Because <laughs> I don't even think we recognise it's going on a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Like, Because we just kind of, it's so habitual. What I was... Um, thinking there though and i think it's great is that yeah maybe you didn't have those tools but like your your attitude towards it like seeing it as like a challenge that you wanted to take on versus like this idea that you're giving something up which is where a lot of people i find can get stuck sometimes right like actually using it as a positive thing that you're doing for yourself versus a negative thing like that's in and of itself a great mindset right like even yesterday i was working with some guys we were talking about your compelling why like why do you want to make this change for yourself like why are you more compelled to drink than to not drink at the minute and what can we do to help shift that balance yeah um and and looking at it at that kind of perspective is really cool it absolutely is you're right and how you see yourself as well a big turning point for me as i started on the, on the 7th of January, and I immediately had my birthday in March, and I would normally go out and drink a lot. And there were things get really exciting around here, around May time through the summer. There's a lot going on in this city. It's a lot of fun, and everyone was going out and doing various things. There was a big social circle, and I was hating it and going out, not drinking, being with people drinking, and having thoughts like, oh, my God, this is so boring. I didn't realise people were so boring when they're not when you're not drunk. <laughs> They're not having conversations. They're not listening to each other. They're just talking over each other. And then I'd be like, what is wrong with me that I can't enjoy this without getting drunk? And I would say to people, I'm not drinking at the moment. Oh, why aren't you having a drink? I'm not drinking at the moment. And then I'd justify it and I'd explain it because I hadn't learned to have the self-worth and the boundaries around not needing to over-explain myself. So I just keep explaining it. And then I realised at one point how horrible I was being to myself. And I suddenly turned around and realised... I needed to just be the person who didn't drink rather than say I'm not drinking and explain it and one day it just came out I hadn't planned it someone said something to me about it when I was out and I said I don't drink they didn't ask me any questions because I made a statement of who I am rather than 
left something open to question with a load of reasons yeah, yeah. why I'm doing this or why aren't it's, it's the same as I'm a vegan so they're not going to offer you meat which is very different from oh, I'm doing veganary or I, are you a vegetarian no I just thought I'd do veganary then you end up in a discussion it's the same with giving up alcohol that shifted everything because then I didn't have to justify myself and explain myself and I got to live into that concept so I was like if I don't drink if if I'm not a drinker what do I do well I say no to outings and invitations that actually are really quite boring without the alcohol and what else do I do well, I look for social events that I'm going to enjoy because they're fun in and of themselves they're not made fun by the blitz of, of, of booze you know and I'll organize to do things that I'm going to enjoy instead yeah I love that I remember when I stopped like I just I remember a guy asked me in a pub and it's like it makes me feel like shit <laughs> And, you know, it's just like the end of conversation. You can't argue with somebody's reality, right? And yeah. so, yeah, I think that's a really great point. Like really just ha like knowing what you're going to say. Don't yeah. leave it open for interpretation. And, and, and then you begin to identify with it. Like, oh, I'm someone who doesn't drink. And as you said, like all those beautiful questions. Well, who am I as somebody who doesn't drink, right? Like looking for all the different <laughs> options. And um there was something you said earlier as well and i wanted to like mention it is talking about like their social anxiety like going out without drinking but wanting mm. to drink right like similar yeah. to what we're just talking about like but sometimes that i think there's different reasons for that social anxiety but sometimes the anxiety in and of itself is caused because you want to drink and you're not drinking right so then that that like so actually even though you're not drinking, it's still the alcohol that's making you feel anxious because you're thinking that you can't have something for yourself and then right. your brain goes off and makes it mean loads of other shit as well. Such a good point, yeah. And I would have yeah. had no awareness of that at the time that I was causing my own pain in the moment because my brain was occupied with, I can't drink, it's not fair. Why is my body so, you know, crap with this? And I'd compare myself to a friend who I knew full well had never been a heavy drinker and only ever has one to two gin and tonics once a week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I would have reflected on what I've just told you and how much I had drunk and it was a miracle my body hadn't broken down many years before it actually did, you know. Um, but yeah. Well, that's just it's a beautiful example of that that inner critic, if you like, right? Like that, that voice is being mean to you and judging you and comparing you to other people, even though <laughs> they're like, nothing like you were in terms of how you were drinking right exactly yeah the comparisonitis yeah. which is a whole nother topic the thief thief of joy is the classic saying and it's so it so is it was definitely when I changed my self-concept that I changed my relationship to myself and I was able to be a lot nicer to myself about it and then around about that same time in that summer I'd heard about the life coach school and I joined their um program which is obviously, you know, the taste that you and I both have in common. And um, I had, I didn't join it for anything to do with drinking. I had no idea that the person that, that ran the school had any kind of involvement with um, not drinking kind of teachings. And I found this stuff in there. And I, I didn't watch it all. I watched one or two. And I was like, oh, right, yeah. So I was on the right track being nice to myself and living as my future self my my future concept of you know I'm I'm a person that doesn't drink but I actually am that now and we went on a family holiday in October somewhere and I suddenly realized oh 
I haven't had an alcoholic drink for 10 months and I'm on holiday. So I've got through my birthday, my husband's birthday, the summer festivals um, in the city, the whole of the summer going out with friends and all the sort of cocktails and barbecues that people have. And I've got through now a holiday with my family and I'm sat here on a sun lounger and I don't want a drink. I don't have a desire for a drink. This is amazing. Mm. And now and then I'd have a little, I'd think about it because my husband would be having a beer. Which it's quite helpful because I've never liked beer. So I'm not saying I wish I could have a beer. I've always been like a spirits or cocktail type of person. And I'm actually still to this day can't tolerate wine. I, I've done something to my body where it just won't tolerate it. So I, I couldn't I couldn't drink it. And I was just like, this little whisper of this could be easy. This, this, is, this could be easy now. And I was really panicked about Christmas because it was always that occasion where there was a lot of drinking. And for me, it would be drinking to try and ignore it because I'm not a fan of Christmas. It's got a lot of trauma involved in Christmas memories mm. for me. And that wasn't hard either. And I got to the following January, which was my year. And I was like, right, well, I don't actually want to drink. Don't fancy it. Don't like it. Don't, I've got no desire to have a drink at all. Have one if I want. Don't want one. Yeah. It's such a beautiful example of 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 not drinking, but kind of like doing the work, quote unquote, if you like, at the same time, right? Like, so just thinking about who you wanted to be and telling yourself that you're not someone who drinks, noticing when you didn't, when you had thoughts about drinking, but like, because I think we got to expect that we're going to notice things, right? Because mm. we've got so many associations, right? Like you said about being out in the town with friends and the summer and the beach, like all of that stuff, Christmas, whatever. Like, our brains got goes to the past to try and predict what's going to happen for us and stuff. So like over that year, you just created that lovely bank of evidence that you didn't need it. And actually, what if it can be easy? And then made that decision so much simpler for yourself. Like it, it yeah. doesn't even sound like it was a decision, right? Like it's, it was just done. Yeah, because of all of the past evidence by that stage when it wasn't easy had then built up to create a set of skills that I had by that stage of being able to reframe my thoughts and to catch myself in the awareness of, of being critical or judgmental, making myself feel shit and being yeah. patient and loving with myself when I did have some, some form of um, mild desire or craving. I can't remember that now, but I'm sure I probably did around Christmas time or something. Um, and I think it would have always felt easy by that stage compared to how tough I found it in the beginning. I mean, if I'd have had the tools we know now at the beginning, it would have been a different kettle of fish, which is why it's so amazing as people like you doing this work. Because we have all this social emotional welfare education in schools now, right? We talk about how different things are now to back when I was a kid in the 80s. And when I was, you know, in my 20s was the classic Ladette culture of the 90s. Yeah. We don't have any education about about confidence and about self-belief and self-worth. No wonder we all drink so much because it's it's really tough growing up in any generation because the things are new. I mean, we talk about how it's difficult today because of the social media and the internet, but there's always something in every generation that's new compared to what the parents were experiencing they can't relate to. But what's not new, what's always there is alcohol as part of the culture. This is how we deal with things. Do you ever see a picture of a celebration that's promoted in any form of medium that's not got alcohol there? No. No, like every time I go down the card aisle in the supermarket or wherever, it's just like, I would say like 
sixty percent, maybe more of those cards are like out alcohol related in every single category, right? <laughs> New home, <laughs> marriage, birthdays, whatever. Like this, just ridiculous. It really yeah. is. And so, just on this idea of self concept, right? Because I know when I stopped drinking. I thought stop, stopping drinking was going to change my entire life. And it has now, like looking back four years, I can see how it has changed my entire life. But yeah. at the time, it didn't really feel like it did. And I remember like a couple of months being a bit like, oh, what's the fucking point? Like, I'm, <laughs> I still feel miserable and stuff like that. But the reason that was is because my self-concept mm. without alcohol was I had very low opinion of myself. And I think that's what some people can find as well is that when they're not drinking, when they're not like wrapped up in their drink identity, they're like, well, what's left then? Mm. And so it's, yeah, right. And it's about like, okay, and as you said, like just, you might not like yourself. You might not like things about yourself, but that isn't who you are. That's just kind of like your brain's opinion that you've perhaps been numbing out or avoiding through drinking alcohol. And what it does is opens you up to actually start thinking about, well, who do I want to be, right? Because yeah. we can be anyone. We and, and that doesn't mean you have to, like, go out traveling all around the world or anything like that. But, like, even just how you want to be within your family towards yourself, right? Like, all of these things are so changeable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was um, into my just after my one year anniversary of giving up, I'd yeah. been in, in, in the school um, that we're both part of uh, as, a, as a student and a client. And I'd already decided within a week that I was going to join their training program to train as a coach. I'd already trained as a coach many years before in 2009 and already had a good skill set. But these, this specific type of way of looking at self-belief and thoughts was so transformational. I thought, I really want to do this. And I would never have had the confidence to make that decision to especially to invest yet more money that I didn't actually have. I had to go into debt to do that. Um, if I hadn't have been not drinking, because I could see so clearly if I can do this without those tools for 10 months before I got them, oh my God, what can I do with them and how can I help other people too? And I was actually primed to join and signed up uh in March 2018 but I actually had to delay it um a year because my health was still not good enough to be sustainable with studying and working at the same time um and I think it's worth mentioning because I think you might have a lot of listeners who I don't know I'm making an assumption here do you do your uh audience and the people that you help want to give up completely or do they want to re-establish a different relationship with alcohol I think it depends Sometimes guys come to me and they, they're just like very actually sure they want to stop. They've just had, had enough. And other guys kind of want to rethink, like want to be able just to have a drink and then not go beyond that point. And my philosophy is let's take a break. I like yeah. for a, a, a month, two months, three months, ideally, because then you might look at it very differently. And I think sometimes when you're trying to like, moderate whilst still unlearning the habit then it can be more of a challenge but you know it really depends on what the guys want so yeah yeah I agree with you just from personal experience I, and, and some women that I've helped I think a significant pause is very useful because it takes 
a while to rewire the, those habits through your brain and the way that you manage the entire response to those brain habits, which is your feelings and, and your actions. And for me, I never intended to give up permanently. I just intended to give up for a year. I didn't want to carry on drinking, but I yeah. did have a drink a few months later. So it would have been about 15 months down the road because it was my husband's 50th birthday and we hadn't had a night alone for like 15 years. And we went to a posh hotel for a spa break and left our eldest looking after the youngest. And we decided to have a glass of champagne and I was just a little bit nervous about it. Mm. And also like, oh my God, is this going to break everything I've achieved? Is this going to get, you know, that I was having those thoughts. Is it going to put the me fear, straight up yeah. on that road? Am I going to suddenly get the taste and the desire again? So I did sip it in trepidation. I can remember this so clearly because it was such a big thing for me. And what actually happened was I could only manage half the glass. And I said, yeah. I can't drink this. And he's like, you are kidding. The woman who'd have knocked back yours and mine and said, let's get the bottle. I was like, I don't want it. And so he drank it. Um, and then after that, what happened was I, I said I can drink if I want to. And I found I would have a couple of drinks on a night out and then not drink for a few months. Or I'd go on holiday and have a drink every night for a week. And I'd come home and think, well, that was quite nice. I'll buy myself a drink. I can't drink wine anymore. So I'd buy a couple of cans of gin and tonic mixer and then I'd forget about them. And six months later, I'd find them in the fridge. I go, oh, I don't know if they're all right. Well, I'll keep them in case someone visits. And there was never alcohol in the house anymore. Whereas there'd always be a couple of bottles of wine. I give alcohol away now. We get a hamper through my husband's work from one of his clients every year. And I give the wine to teachers at school and stuff. I just completely and utterly forget about it. I I, I bought a bottle of champagne in uh, Reims in France on a visit that was very akin to Krug, which was my favourite champagne, which I would never, you know, I didn't want to spend that amount of money, I wouldn't be able to afford it, but this was similar and a lot cheaper. And I forgot about it and found it five years later. <laughs> Not the Christmas just gone, the Christmas before we decided to drink it because otherwise it might be be too horrible. So I completely reevaluated my relationship and rebuilt it. And because I then said, I'm not a non-drinker, I'm somebody who chooses to just not drink. Once I took off that pressure, I think people find the same thing with food. I can if I want, I don't want. Yeah, it's funny, I've isn't it? I even said, I wanna have a, I'm gonna have a drink. And I get there, I'm like, actually, I just really don't want it. It's just the yeah, desire right. has shrunk so small now. Amazing. All right, Karen. Thank you for, for sharing your story and sharing what sobriety's looked like for you since. I think it's absolutely incredible and really appreciate the the, the rawness <laughs> of it all as well, right? Because there's some stuff, tough stuff in there. And before you go, a couple of questions. One is, do you have anything that you want to offer any of the guys? And it's not just guys listening. We, you know, we have women listening, we have people who are uh, non-binary listening as well, right? Like so lots of people listen to this podcast which is amazing yeah. is there anything that you want to offer anybody who's listening today um about giving up alcohol yeah about rethinking their relationship with alcohol rethinking their relationship with themselves right because ultimately that's that's what actually happens yes that's true that's true um right yeah white knuckling and forcing and pushing yourself to change doesn't work it's okay in the short term and you probably think it does work 
because you'll see some incremental results, but then you'll fail and say, oh, it's not working because it's not a path for sustainable change. If you want any kind of permanent sustainable change in your life, whether that's giving up alcohol, cutting back on food or any other kind of goal that you set yourself, you've got to be prepared to really love yourself through all the fears and the failures that come along the way. Because it's not going to be a perfect journey. Transformation doesn't require perfection. It requires consistency and the willingness to keep showing up for yourself every single day. People often think it's motivation that's lacking, that's the problem, and it's not, it's commitment. When we're committed, we can be consistent. And when we're consistent over time, and that can be a long time, we get results. And those results keep us motivated. And so really, if that all sounds like a lot, all you've got to do is make a decision and be committed. And that commitment can just be, what can I do today? What's the one step I can do today to support myself? And then look for the wins every single day. Your brain will yeah. want to go look for the problems and the failures. But look for the wins. I yeah. had I had three beers, but I could I nearly had four. I stopped halfway through the bottle of wine. Or, you know, whatever it is. I didn't drink on Tuesday. Normally I drink every Tuesday. I know. I love that. It's and I did a podcast recently on called Find the Wins, right? It's so important. Like even the, the most subtle of wins, right? Like having three and a half glasses instead of four, right? Because that's progress, in my opinion. Like that's you consciously making a decision. Actually, I don't actually I don't really want this. Like there's there's part of me that it desires it, but actually it's part of me that's like, well, what's the point? Yeah. So finding those wins is such an important thing. Cause the more you do that, the more you're gonna feel good, the more you feel good, the more you're gonna make choices that are in alignment with what you want, man. Like magic, totally. really magic. Totally. Cool. Final question. And yeah. that is, what does it mean to be radically human? Oh, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> radically human. I think that um, to be radically human is to be willing to just radically accept yourself and be authentic, mm. whatever that looks like. So not hiding your vulnerabilities, not shying away from the fact that things are hard and you have failures. Um, being willing to be open to the whole experience. The human experience is both amazing and challenging and scary. Um, and that we need to be here for all of it. And that the less we hide from it, the easier it actually is. It's the hiding that creates more fear and more resistance, which creates more fear. <laughs> yeah, that's such, such a beautiful example of of radical uh what it means to be radically human right because we're all thinking everybody's lives are a certain way right but like the more vulnerable we can be with other people the more we're modeling that for other people as well and we can actually see you know like you and me both coached a lot of brains out there and you know we're so similar man like we just don't like to talk about things because of what society expects from us or projects or models whatever it might be so yeah love that that radical, is so radical true. Acceptance. I think that's yeah. probably one of the most important pieces of wisdom we can all learn is that actually beneath it all, we all look different on the surface and we all have different experiences and we can never truly know what life is like through somebody else's eyes and lens because we're not them and so we shouldn't make assumptions. We have to understand. That's why I'm an intersectional feminist, by the way, because I want to understand that somebody with a very different lived experience because of perhaps a marginalised identity 
as even if it looks on the surface the same as me because they might also be a woman and they might also have a similar um, background history and education etc but underneath all that what you just said we've all got the same fears we all want to be loved we all want connection we all want to get it right we all want to make have some sort of meaning in our life we want people to accept us to be valued we worry about yeah. the same shit all the time and for your folk, for you men, as a as a mum of two boys, an adult, a teenager, and I'm married to a man, I can say that, you know, I think it's a lot harder because society is very much geared towards trying to condition men to not show those vulnerabilities. And they need people like you doing the work to help support them because I think that's the way to to a healthy mind, healthy heart, healthy body to take care of your, your brain and your emotions yeah absolutely amazing all right karen where can people find you hang out with you connect with you what, what's the best place for them to go um right okay so mainly on social media i'm karen rudd coaching on instagram and that's mainly and i'm also just karen rudd on linkedin um and the same on Facebook, but mainly I don't have a website at the moment. Um, so, yeah, if someone wants to get in touch with me, they can just get in touch with me on my Instagram page or email me, actually. I'm old fashioned. I use email <laughs> for communication with people. And that's yeah. just KarenRuddCoaching at gmail.com. Amazing. Well, we'll put all of that on the show notes. Any guys you want to get in contact with Karen? Or anybody listening who wants to get in contact with Karen, you'll be able to do that. Karen, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care and bye bye.